On February 17, 1977, Helen Brock, the 65-year-old heiress to the Brock Candy Empire and one of the richest women in the country, vanished without a trace. Helen had been at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota for a checkup. She was headed to her 18-room mansion, set on a seven-acre estate in Glenview, a suburb of Chicago. From there, she planned to travel to her condominium in Florida. The doctors gave Helen a clean bill of health, and on her way out of town, she stopped at the clinic's gift shop to buy some towels, a cosmetic powder box, and a soap dish. She spent $41, she used her Amex card, and told the clerk to please finish wrapping her items because, she said, I'm in a hurry. My houseman is waiting. Now, the clerk would later tell investigators that she remembered this conversation well because that phrase just wasn't common. Helen apparently was alone at the clinic, but she did have a houseman. His name was Jack Matlick. He worked for Helen as a driver, butler, kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He was a handyman and did odd jobs around the house. Once Helen left that gift shop, she was never seen alive again. Helen's disappearance would become one of the area's most notorious unsolved mysteries. It would eventually evolve into a crazy case that involved shady household help, a sweet-talking gigolo, and a deep dive into the world of horse hitmen, where thoroughbreds are assassinated for money. I'm Katherine Townsend. This is Red Collar. Helen Brack was born in 1911 in Ohio, and the first part of her life was actually pretty traditional. She grew up on a farm, lived through the Depression, and married her high school sweetheart. But by the time she was 21, she was divorced, and she went to Palm Beach, Florida to start a new life. Eventually, she got a job as a hat check girl at a country club, and that's where she met Frank Brack, heir to the E.J. Brack & Sons Candy Company. That's the candy company that creates Brax caramels and candy corn. I've been eating them since I was a kid, and I still see them everywhere at the drugstore. It really did become a candy empire. There were a few complications in Frank and Helen's love story. Frank was around 60 at the time he met Helen. She was this red-haired, 5'10", vivacious beauty, about 20 years younger. Also, he was still married to his second wife at the time. In fact... He reportedly met Helen after she heard Frank and his wife having an argument at the club. But despite the complications, they fell in love. A few months later, he divorced his second wife. Frank's second wife called Helen a man-stealer. But in the end, she got a generous six-figure settlement. So Frank got his freedom, and he and Helen got married. It seemed to be kind of the third time lucky for Frank, because according to friends and family, he and Helen had a very happy marriage. Frank adored her and lavished her with gifts. They had homes in Fisher Island, a very wealthy community in Florida. And in addition to the Glenview home, they had a farm in Ohio and later Helen's Florida condo. After they were married, the couple spent most of their time in Florida. Helen was obsessed with the color pink. She convinced her husband to make it the official color of Brax candy. And she drove around in a pink Cadillac and a lavender Rolls Royce. Helen and Frank were together until he died in January 1970. He left her around $30 million, 
which would be worth over $100 million in today's money. After Frank died, Helen was pretty lonely. According to press reports, Helen didn't really fit into Chicago society. She didn't seem to have many close friends there, but she was totally obsessed with her animals. She established the Helen Brack Foundation and donated huge amounts of money to help animals. She had a menagerie of stray cats, horses, and two poodles, who she named Candy and Sugar. So since Helen didn't have a ton of people in her social life, one of the people who she talked to most was her houseman, Jack Matlick. And after Helen disappeared, police wanted to talk to him too. Jack said that after visiting the clinic, Helen took her flight to Chicago. He said he picked her up at O'Hare Airport on Friday afternoon and drove her home. Jack said that he spent the weekend with Helen at the house in Glenview. He said he was doing repairs, and then he drove her back to O'Hare at around 7 a.m. on Monday so that she could make her flight to Florida. Now, Jack insisted that he dropped Helen off for her flight that morning, and he had no idea what happened to her after that. But Helen never arrived in Florida. And though investigators did find that her ticket was used on the flight, back in the 70s, they didn't have the same rigorous ID requirements that they have now. So police could not absolutely confirm that it was Helen on the plane. They talked to the flight crew, and none of the flight attendants could be sure that it had been her. Investigators were also seeing other red flags. First of all, Jack said that he had driven Helen to the airport in a Jeep, rather than one of the fancier and more recognizable cars. Also, everyone who knew Helen said that she hated getting up early. She hated early morning flights, and she always took a ton of luggage with her. She was a planner. This time, she took no luggage. Police talked to Jack's wife, who said that he spent the night at Glenview on Friday night, which he had never done before. And when police asked Jack if anything weird had happened that weekend, Jack mentioned that Helen had cut her hand on a trunk. Some people wondered if this was a way to explain traces of blood if they were found, but police never mentioned finding any blood. On Saturday night, Jack said that Helen had had a date with a man whose name he didn't know. But police were never able to find that person or identify him. Helen was a creature of habit, and she normally called a friend to pick her up in Florida. But this time she didn't do that. She also left her coat in the car. Jack explained this by saying that she wasn't going to need a heavy coat in Florida, so she left it in the car. Jack said Helen told him she didn't need any help with her luggage this time. So he said he dropped her off at the curb and left. There was also the fact that Helen had not called a single soul that weekend. Several friends called and said that Jack told them that Helen wasn't available. One friend actually stopped by the house, and she said that Jack and another man she didn't recognize told her that Helen was unavailable. The bottom line was that no one other than Jack could verify that Helen had been seen alive since that gift shop clerk back in Minnesota. And then investigators learned that Jack did some deep cleaning in the maid's room, and he had Helen's pink Cadillac shampooed. He also ordered a meat grinder attachment from Marshall Fields. This caused a lot of rumors around town. People were saying that Jack had killed Helen, cut up her body, and fed it to her dogs. But police later pointed out that that meat grinder was way too small to have had any role in getting rid of a 138-pound woman. Then investigators started following the money. They found out that Jack had cashed several checks from Helen for around $15,000 in total. But Helen's accountant would later tell police that the signature on the checks was not hers. 
Jack claimed that he signed the checks for Helen because she had arthritis. So the circumstantial evidence was adding up, and it did not look good for Jack. But there were other people of interest who started popping up. There was the bizarre behavior of Helen's brother, Charles Voorhees. Charles was Helen's only sibling. So Jack contacted him after Helen went missing. But he didn't even try to report Helen missing for over two weeks. He explained this by saying that she was somewhat of a private person, she was an adult, she traveled a lot. But once Jack contacted Charles, Charles flew to Chicago, and he and Jack reported Helen missing. At first, the police didn't seem too concerned. So Jack and Charles went to Helen's house to look for clues. Now this is where things get weird. Helen had some eccentric behaviors, and one of them was automatic writing. It's something that a lot of the surrealist artists did. It's basically when you just start writing and don't think about what comes out on the page. It's supposed to channel inner spirituality. And Helen was pretty serious about it. She had a stack of diaries, and she wrote in them every day. She wrote down the things she did, but there were also a lot of diaries full of her automatic writing. Charles said that Helen had given him explicit instructions, and she said if anything ever happened to her, she wanted her diaries to be burned. So he told police that he allowed Jack Matlick to burn her diaries. I could understand it if Helen's body had been found. But in this case, his sister was missing. So it seems very strange that Helen's brother would just allow someone to come in and burn evidence of what she could have been doing. Police asked Jack to take a lie detector test. He ended up taking two of them. And the results were inconclusive. Police also talked to Everett Moore an accountant who'd been with the family for over three decades. Everett Moore was the executor of Helen's estate. He was the one in charge of dispersing the $300,000 that her late husband's trust paid every year. Police also questioned Charles Voorhees. They asked if he didn't find parts of Jack's story strange. They also wondered why he hadn't asked more questions about his sister's itinerary. What flight did she take? Who were her friends in Florida? When they talked to Charles... They used yes or no questions, and he gave very short answers. Basically, he volunteered nothing, and they were left frustrated. Then investigators found something else. They found Helen's luggage that had been picked up from O'Hare Airport. The luggage still had the tags on and clothes inside. But instead of believing that it proved that Helen had been on that flight, police believed that this was a setup, that they were meant to find that luggage. They started to believe that someone may have impersonated Helen and used her ticket on the flight, and that that might have been the person who had carried the suitcase. Again, they followed the money. They looked at Helen's will. She left Jack Matlick $50,000 in her will, but he was never able to collect the money. A judge later ruled that he actually owed the estate $90,000 for items that he removed from Helen's home, including rare coins. In the end, Jack agreed to take no money if the Brack family dropped the lawsuit. So police were very suspicious of Jack Matlick, and his story made no sense. But they wondered, if Jack did kill Helen, what happened in that house and what would his motive have been? He didn't really seem to get anything after Helen died. She seemed to be much more valuable to him alive. If Jack had killed Helen, police believed that it may have been a crime of passion. Maybe Helen had caught him stealing, Or in one of their spirited discussions about the Cadillac she gave him, one that he said he was planning to sell, maybe he flew into a rage and hit her. Eventually, Helen was declared legally dead. And over the years, 
Investigators said they believe that her remains were dissolved in a chemical vat or a blast furnace shortly after she went missing. But they couldn't find anything definitive on Jack Matlick. Around that time, investigators found out that there was someone else they wanted to talk to, a guy named Richard Bailey. He owned Bailey Stables and Country Club Stables, and he'd been dating Helen. Police wanted to talk to Richard Bailey, but Richard hired an attorney and refused to say anything. When he was deposed in a civil lawsuit, he literally took the fifth on everything, including his address. So police never arrested or charged Jack Matlick or Richard Bailey. And the case went cold for over a decade. Over the years, a lot of people contacted police with their theories about what they thought had happened to Helen. Each one seemed to be wilder than the next. An article in the Washington Post read, quote, The case of the missing heiress became a legend here. Some people thought she had been killed by her handyman and ground up into little pieces, while others believed she had lost her memory and was living on a Pacific island, end quote. Over the years, investigators did a lot of digging around Helen's house and other areas, but they didn't find anything. They also compared Helen's dental records to hundreds of Midwest Jane Doe's over the years but got no matches. But over the years, more and more people started to believe that Richard Bailey may know more about Helen's disappearance than he was admitting. In 1978, someone spray-painted a message in red on a road near Helen's house. It read, Richard Bailey knows where Miss Brock's body is. Stop him. But they never found out who did it. Then, in 1989, police got a break in a really unexpected way. Federal agents started investigating Richard Bailey and his scams in the horse world. Now, Richard Bailey was quite a character. According to Ken Inglade's book, Hot Blood, the true story of an heiress, a gigolo, and a shocking murder, Richard's scam was pretty straightforward. He was a lifelong con man. He would meet women, sometimes through people he met in the horsing world. He would tell the women they were his soulmates and then very quickly convinced them to invest money into horses he sold them. In one of his ads in the Pioneer Press, Richard Bailey described himself as a handsome, fun-loving Leo who lived on a farm with horses, llamas, sheep, and a German shepherd dog. He wrote, If you are a young, slim, trim, classy, and smart lady, please call. Richard Bailey was born in Kentucky, and he moved around a lot as an adult. He seemed to focus on where the money was. His first career was as a driving instructor, and he focused on older women with money. He never seemed to actually teach them to drive, he just collected money for the lessons. According to the book Hot Blood, he had rules like never taking a pigeon's, which is what he called his victims, last dollar. In other words, don't leave them so broke that they have nothing left to lose. In 1970, his license to operate the driving school got revoked. So he turned to the world of horses. The horsing world is a perfect place to meet people with money because it takes a serious level of wealth to be able to enter that world. It's sort of like buying a yacht or a helicopter. The expenses associating with owning a horse are huge. A thoroughbred can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and then you have riding lessons, dressage fees, competition entry. It's, it's an extremely expensive sport. That's not even including designer saddles and all of the equipment you need. 
So this is a perfect place for Richard to scout for his next victim. He came up with a scam that he used over and over. What he would normally do is buy a horse from the stable owner and then sell it to one of his love interests at a hugely inflated price. So the woman would end up with a worthless horse and Richard would pocket the money. Investigators discovered that over the years, Richard Bailey had conned multiple women. He had dozens of civil lawsuits filed against him, almost all of them by women, and almost all mentioning horse scams. Police found a victim named Carol Carstensen, who Richard had scammed in 1972. Richard was introduced to Carol through a colleague of his, a stable owner named Frank Jane. At the time Richard claimed to be wealthy and divorced, he showed Carol pictures of his ex-wife and neglected to tell her that they were still married. Like many narcissistic con men, Richard showered Carol with presents and flowers and love-bombed her. So Carol ended up giving her soulmate $100,000. Carol had a health condition, and her doctor started to get concerned because she was losing a lot of weight. So Richard suggested that Helen check into the Mayo Clinic. The same thing, by the way, that he would later tell Helen. He said that he could arrange to get her in there through one of his contacts. While she was in the hospital, she said that Richard took out a piece of paper that was a power of attorney document and asked her to sign it. Clearly seeing a lot of red flags at this point, she refused. And she said at that point, his personality did a complete 180. He told her that he was going to South America and basically dumped her on the spot. Carol was devastated. And she was also broke. She had been swindled out of a quarter of a million dollars in total. While she was in her hospital bed, a couple of other people came in and said that they could help her out and offered to help her solve her problem if she would give them some money. She didn't realize it at the time, but these guys were actually in on Richard's scam. In looking at Carol's case, investigators learned that Richard was also involving other people in these scams. Carol tried to go to the authorities, but said that they suggested she file a civil lawsuit. So she did file a lawsuit, but she said she started getting threatening phone calls late at night, warning her not to rock the boat. Then one day, she was out on her horse when she says a car slammed on the gas and veered straight toward her. She said she was able to jump out of the way at the last second, but she really believed someone was trying to kill her. Two of her horses died under mysterious circumstances. Then her barn burned down. She would later discover during the civil suit that Richard had sold her a $900 horse for $25,000. Carol lost everything. But she would later tell investigators that she felt lucky to get out of this relationship alive. Over the years, Richard perfected his scam. He was driving an older model Mercedes, and he upgraded to a Rolls Royce. He would take women on a brilliant and very expensive first date, and often he would buy a bottle of wine that cost like $200. He would flatter them, tell them he wanted to marry them, and then several dates, or sometimes even on the first and second date, he would ask for money. Often, he would ask for $50,000, but if they offered him $10,000, he would take it. He took advantage of the fact that a lot of these women did not have in-depth knowledge of the horses they were investing in. Richard used to say, there's no blue book on horses, and he definitely used this to his advantage. So while Richard was scamming these women, Helen was grieving Frank's death. She was on her own with her animals for several years. But eventually, she thought about finding male companionship. In 1973, she met Richard. 
who was described in the press by one of my favorite phrases I think I've ever heard, a suburban horse swindler and part-time gigolo. They got together through one of Helen's friends, a middle-aged woman with money who was Richard's type. The friend had met him by chance at a car wash and thought that he seemed charming and handsome. He had a deep tan, he wore a pinky ring, but he really knew how to sweet talk someone on a first meeting. So this woman told him that she was married, but she said she had a single friend who Richard may like. So she set Helen and Richard up. They met at a restaurant and started dating. At the time, she was 62 and he was 44. Richard told her that he had a brother named PJ Bailey, who was a jockey. And when he found out that she had an interest in horses, he jumped at the opportunity. In 1975, PJ sold Helen two horses named Brack Sweet Talk and Voorhees Love. Several months later, Helen bought another third horse from PJ for $45,000. Investigators later determined that these horses were not worth anything what Helen had paid for them. The one she paid $45,000 for was worth $8,500. And even though PJ was the one who sold Helen the horses, Richard was the mastermind behind the deal and he pocketed a lot of the money from the sale. All of this came to light in 1989, when according to the Chicago Tribune, they talked to a widow named Barbara Morris. Now this is when the investigation into Richard Bailey really kicked off. Barbara said that Richard had sweet-talked her into a relationship and asked her for $50,000. She wrote him a check, he gave her five racehorses as collateral. She later found out the horses were worthless. Richard never repaid her, and she got stuck with the horses' boarding costs. So she went to the police. But the local police referred her to the Illinois State Police because the case was out of their jurisdiction. So Barbara Morris met with State Police Lieutenant David Hamm, who had been investigating Helen's case for years. He knew that he was on to something, and he thought Richard Bailey might have a lot more victims out there. But when he took the info to state prosecutors, they weren't too interested. As in so many red-collar cases, Unless millions of dollars are stolen, it's really hard to get anyone interested. They suggested that she file a civil lawsuit instead. Then, Lieutenant Ham met with an FBI agent named Clint Rand. Eventually, Assistant U.S. Attorney Stephen Miller got involved. This was very bad news for Richard Bailey because Stephen Miller was actually a former banking fraud specialist. And he had figured out a method to help crack unsolved murder cases. And what he would do is he would reinvestigate them as financial crimes and prosecute them using the RICO, Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Code. Basically, racketeering is a federal crime and murder can be included in the charges. So the federal authorities asked Barbara to wear a wire to the stables when she talked to Richard, and she did. That's when they realized there were a ton of other people involved in Richard's scams. There was the stable owner, a local vet who was giving horses drugs to make them appear to be healthier than they were, and other people who would pose as experts. Sometimes, Richard would involve a second person who would pretend to bid for a horse in front of the victim, so the price would get jacked up and the victim ended up overpaying. Then, Richard would split the money for the overvalued horse with the fellow con man. The indictment read, quote, while executing his schemes, Bailey was not averse to taking advantage of his victim's weaknesses. He plied an alcoholic with champagne and cocktails while she and her daughter visited the stables. And he seemed to defraud gravely ill women by obtaining their powers of attorney when he visited them in the hospital. 
When Bailey had gained as much money as he could from the women, he ended the relationship. Though occasionally, he passed the woman on for his co-conspirators to further defraud. His victims were often left brokenhearted and destitute, end quote. One of his victims was left so broke that she was reduced to eating dog food. The investigation into Richard was heating up, and things were about to take an even darker turn. Because the investigation into Helen's death lifted the lid on the world of wealthy people who owned racehorses. And when the horses weren't performing the way they expected, they would actually hire horse hitmen to kill or wound them. Police were about to uncover the horse murders. The horse murder story sent shockwaves through the horsing community. We always think of equestrians as these prim and proper people. But it turned out that to collect insurance money, a lot of them were electrocuting their horses or starving them or kneecapping them. Some were even burned alive. The ringleader of the horse scams was a man named Silas Jane. His nephew, Frank Jane, was the owner of the stable Richard used. Silas and the group called themselves the Jane Gang, and their specialty was horse scams. They would commit insurance fraud, sometimes sell horses to slaughter, and they scammed a lot of people. Federal authorities say Richard Bailey was an associate of Silas Jane's, and his nephew Frank played a key role in the story by introducing Richard to victims. Eventually, 36 people were indicted for charges including mail and wire fraud, insurance fraud, racketeering, and animal cruelty. 35 were convicted. When the wealthy horse owner's horse wasn't performing as expected, they would hire this horse hitman to kill the animals so they could collect the insurance money. The people charged included wealthy horse riders and their family members, and many others in the equestrian industry. They included some famous people in the Olympic and literary worlds. Jay McInerney, the author of Bright Lights, Big City, is said to have based the character of Alison Poole on Riel Hunter, whose name back then was Lisa Druck. In the novel, The Story of My Life, Alison Poole talks about her show jumper horse, Dangerous Dan, and how he suddenly dropped dead. According to ABC News, Lisa's father, James Druck, ordered a hit on her horse, Henry the Hawk, in 1982. The man he hired to kill the horse was a criminal named Tommy Burns. He would become known as the Sandman because he put horses to sleep. He told investigators that he charged between $5,000 and $40,000, or about 10% of the insurance price on the horse, to kill a horse in a way that looked like an accident. He electrocuted horses. He learned the technique in 1982 from James Druck. He claimed that his method of horse killing was quick and painless. In 1992, reporters William Knack and Lester Munson interviewed the Sandman for Sports Illustrated. They wrote, quote, Burns's preferred method of killing horses was electrocution. Druck personally taught him how to rig the wires to electrocute Henry the Hawk, how to slice an extension cord down the middle into two strands of wire, how to attach a pair of alligator clips to the bare end of each wire, and how to attach the clips to the horse, one to its ear, the other to its rectum. All he had to do then, says Burns, was plug the cord into a standard wall socket and step back, end quote. According to the Los Angeles Times, another one of the people who was accused of hiring a horse hitman was George Lindemann Jr. Now this was shocking because he was a member of the U.S. equestrian team, 
and son of a cellular phone tycoon named George Lindemann. His wealth was estimated by Forbes magazine at $575 million, yet authorities say that he paid $25,000 to electrocute a horse so that he could collect the insurance proceeds. As the horse murder scandal story broke, the LA Times interviewed a man named Bill Graham, an insurance investigator from South Carolina. He said, quote, just because they've got money doesn't mean they're gentlemen or gentlewomen. It's an incestuous, money-grubbing industry. They don't look at horses as far as their intrinsic value. There's no altruism. If they don't perform, they're going to the glue factory. That's it, end quote. According to the indictment, Helen had started to realize that her horses were basically worthless. So Richard conspired to arrange her murder. On New Year's Eve 1977, Helen and Richard went out, danced at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. And at that point, they seemed to be on good terms. But shortly after that, everything started to fall apart. Early in 1977, Richard got $150,000 from Helen through selling her more horses. But by now, Helen was getting suspicious. She had an appraiser tell her that the horses were not worth putting $50,000 into. According to witnesses, she went to the stables and started screaming about being cheated. She told people that she was going to the district attorney's office. She told a friend of hers who had a contact in the prosecutor's office that she planned to go to the state attorney's after she got back from the Mayo Clinic. Of course, we now know that she never made it back from that trip. Prosecutors believed that Silas Jane and Richard Bailey were both involved in Helen's apparent abduction. And there were rumors over the years that Silas Jane may have ordered a hit on Helen because he was afraid of being exposed. Federal investigators charged Richard under the RICO Act, which was passed in the 70s to help prosecute mob bosses. The prosecutor, Stephen Miller, told a journalist who wrote an article about the case called The Lady Vanishes, prove the fraud and the murder will fall into place. Authorities talked to around a thousand witnesses. They got information from informants, including the Sandman. But they really wanted the man tabloids had nicknamed the Galloping Gigolo, Richard Bailey. Richard pleaded guilty to racketeering, mail and wire fraud, and money laundering charges. He admitted that he'd swindled Helen, but he absolutely denied having anything to do with her death. He was never convicted of Helen's murder. Instead, he was sentenced based on the preponderance of evidence that he was actually Helen Brack's killer. Preponderance as opposed to beyond a reasonable doubt that would have been required during a criminal murder trial. He was given a sentence of life in prison. It was later reduced to 30 years. And at that sentencing, the judge made it clear that the sentence reflected their belief that Richard was involved in Helen's death. In 2005, there was another twist in the case. This time an informant came forward and claimed that he had crucial information. Now, this guy had been given total immunity from prosecution. His name was Joe Plemons, and he told the Chicago Tribune that he met a man named Kenneth Hansen, who was later convicted of murdering three boys, in February 1977 at a stable. He said that he went to the stable and a Cadillac pulled in. Hansen's brother, Kurt, who he said was a mob hitman at the time, opened up the trunk and Helen was inside. Joe said that at that point, Kurt told him that if he didn't shoot Helen, he would be killed. So he said that he did shoot her twice, fatally. And then he said he helped throw her body into a pit at a local steel mill. The Cook County State Attorney's Office declined to bring charges just based on this confession. 
And a lot of people who know Helen, including family and friends, have said they just don't believe this story. To help back up his story, he described a ruby ring that he said Helen had been wearing when her body was thrown into the pit. He said the ring fell off and he kept it. Many years later, he gave it to police. One of the ATF agents who worked the case said he believed that this was conclusive proof that Joe had been telling the truth. But there was no DNA evidence that linked the ring to Helen, and her family didn't recognize the ring. Joe Plemons claimed that he waited years to tell this story because he was afraid for his life. He said that Silas Jane had ordered the hit. He listed 10 people who he said were involved, and Richard Bailey wasn't one of them. In 1994, reporters from the local news station showed up outside Jack Matlick's door in Butler, Pennsylvania. He yelled that he had no idea what happened to Helen and shut the door in their face. Jack Matlick died of natural causes in a nursing home in Pennsylvania in 2010. He was 79. A lot of people, including Helen's brother and federal authorities, absolutely believed that Jack Matlick was involved in Helen's murder. And there are still a lot of missing pieces to this puzzle. There were the holes in Jack Matlick's stories. We know that Richard involved other people in his scams. Could he have been working with Jack Matlick? People said that they hated each other. But it does seem like a pretty huge coincidence that Richard took one of his former victims to the Mayo Clinic, and that's the last place where Helen was seen. It's also a little unclear what the exact motive was. Helen was not like most of the other women, who Silas Jane or Richard Bailey scammed. She was wealthy and powerful, and if she threatened to go to authorities, millions of dollars would have been at risk. Richard Bailey served his sentence at federal prison in Florida. He was released in 2019 at the age of 89. He married a woman named Dr. Annette Hoffman, a South African plastic surgeon. Like a lot of other women, he whined and dined her. Soon they were married in a quickie Vegas ceremony. And it was only after that that she figured out that he had lied about his age, his credit rating, and all of his legal problems. She split up with him, but he actually talked her into getting back together, and they remarried. Richard Bailey was a fantastic liar. Several people said that they asked him how he could sleep with a woman who was so much older than him. He would say, it's easy. You just close your eyes and think of the money. Helen was figuring out that Richard Bailey had conned her. She talked to a vet who told her that one of the horses she bought from Richard's brother PJ was basically worthless. A man who Helen bought a memorial plot from said he vividly remembered her being very upset about being swindled in a horsing deal. He said that he suggested that she go to the state's attorney. Again, she said she had to wait until her appointment was done at the Mayo Clinic. And even after the judge gave a speech saying Richard was responsible for Helen's death, His wife stood by him. She said, according to the Los Angeles Times, he makes you feel like you're the only woman in the world. Because there's no parole in the federal system, Richard Bailey would have to serve almost all of his sentence, which he did. He was released on parole in 2019 when he was 89 years old. Helen Brack's fortune lived on. She used her money to fund the Helen V. Brack Foundation in 1974 to help and protect animals. And the foundation has been working on that cause ever since. Her money continues to save animals. Helen's body has never been found. She has a memorial gravestone right next to her husband Frank and the gravestones for her two dogs, Candy and Sugar. 
Red Collar is an AudioChuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Katherine Townsend, with production assistance from Alyssa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?